the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to God Talk Radio, the world for people who think. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Soft Talk Radio. I'm your host, Neil Bradley, with me in the studio tonight, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Pierre Lescordon. Bonjour. And Scott Ogwin. Hello. So this week, we've got a very special guest with us, Wallace Thornhill of Thunderbolts fame. Wallace Thornhill is an Australian physicist and chief science advisor to the Thunderbolts Project, which I think a lot of our readers will be familiar with and our listeners, and the Thunderbolts Project is an interdisciplinary collaboration of accredited scientists and independent researchers. Their mission is to explore the electric universe paradigm, something we're going to be discussing today with them in person. So Wall is also the co-author of, with David Talbot, of two superb books that we highly recommend, The Electric Universe and Thunderbolts of the Gods. The Thunderbolts Project website is thunderbolts.info, and Wall also has his own website at holoscience.com. That's H-O-L-O science.com. Welcome, Wall. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for being on the show with us. And for getting up so early. Indeed. You're pretty much at a, the antipode of where we are right now, close enough anyway, uh, down under. So um, it's a totally different world down there almost. Definitely a different time zone. Then I will be friends. And uh, maybe you can start with uh, by the first question, um, the Electric Universe. Uh, why such a title? And uh, for mainstream science, the universe is not electric? Yes, the, uh, <clears throat> the title uh, came to me in the late 90s. I had been working on the, the problem of what exactly were the thunderbolts of the gods, because uh, this uh, aspect of lightning, which uh, is represented by all of the ancient nations uh, was the representation itself looks nothing like lightning today and they also associated it with planets in the sky which doesn't make any sense in today's world in the process of figuring out what was going on in our own solar system it uh, occurred to me that there was far more to it than that because um, electricity (coughs) is involved at every level in uh, our existence, uh, right from biology uh, through uh, weather systems. Uh, On the sun, we see electrical activity, uh, very powerful electrical activity, and so on. And when you look out into deep space, you also see uh, the same kinds of things. It's a repeated pattern. And when you delve down into the other direction, uh, how far down can you go, you know, into atoms and then the particles within atoms and what about those particles themselves and gradually over a number of decades it dawned on me that the electric force was all you needed to explain all of them and therefore when it came to writing the book The Electric Universe uh, I I coined that title and um, also um, tried to point out that 
the science of the future but will be one of simplification, not inventing new particles and new energies and all of this kind of thing and gradually going further and further down a dead end of modern science. Now, there are a lot of areas in science where it's acknowledged that electricity plays a, a key role, but the contribution I take from, from your work is looking at the cosmology, how the planets interact, the solar system, at the, the level of galaxy and beyond. This is an extraordinary addition to... No, I don't even know it's an addition. I mean, maybe a starting point is, well, how does the, how does the standard model work? Because I read your work and I go, okay, that makes sense. And then I can't make heads or tails of what they're trying to tell us in terms of uh, how planets form by, what do they call it, by accretion? That there's a great big mass, by gravitational force. Okay, so maybe that's the starting point for the electric universe, the big picture. Yeah. Uh, Well, the uh, standard model of um, stars and the universe are all based around uh, the gravitational collection of matter. But gravity is a force which is so weak that, uh, you know, we can jump away from the entire Earth. The entire Earth cannot hold hold us to it. Um, Whereas the electric force, by comparison, is uh, phenomenally powerful. It's uh, 10 to the 39 times more powerful than the gravitational force, and yet it's ignored in astronomy. Uh, I can see the reason for that. Uh, When I was at university, uh, we were asked to calculate how much energy would be required to separate all of the positive and negative charge inside a teaspoon of salt. And uh, it was some phenomenal figure. So the feeling was that uh, the energy is just not available to separate charge. And then the problem arises. If astronomers are taught this gravitational model of the universe, they are completely unaware of the kinds of things that can happen when you have powerful electric forces in operation. Uh, Astronomers acknowledge that the universe is 99.99% of charged particles, free-moving charged particles, but they always assume that they're they're in equal numbers. In other words, there's no electrical force in action. These particles are all free to move and if there is a separation of charge it's instantly because of that powerful force uh, neutralized so that's the big difference yeah there's the problem too in science that um, it's a cultural activity you know there's a lot of um, talk about the standards of science and uh, you know how you adhere to observation and experiment the empirical approach as they call it However, we're just humans and we attach ourselves very strongly to stories that we're taught as uh, kids and in fact uh, people will go to war over these stories so that's the power of the paradigm as they call it. And so when somebody comes up with a completely different viewpoint uh, the tendency is to uh, dismiss it uh, to, if if that story continues, to denigrate the people who are spreading the story and generally creating problems, but it means that science progresses very slowly, rather like Arthur Kersler characterized it in his book, The Sleepwalkers. So like people stumbling around in the dark and tripping over things. 
Um, and this is the way the uh, results coming back from space probes are being handled now. Hmm. Mostly what you read about are surprises, things that shouldn't exist, stars that shouldn't exist, and uh, behavior out in deep space that shouldn't exist. So the electric universe uh, shows that all of these things uh, can be simply explained and that you don't have to indulge in higher mathematics. The first principle of physics is to get your concepts right and to be very clear in your language. And this is something that modern science certainly is not. The language is obscure. You know, particle physicists talk about charm and color. What the dickens does that mean? You know, mm. There's no physical meaning. Uh, and at the other extreme, uh, astronomers talk about um, magnetic reconnection. Well, what, the, what does that mean? It's like trying to connect lines of latitude and longitude. It's meaningless. Uh, but when you introduce the electric force and look at the work of the engineers who work with uh, high-energy plasma discharges, uh, they're all generally members of the IEEE. That's the biggest professional organization in the world. These people actually recognize uh, the real behavior of electricity in plasma, but they're ignored. I've only seen one astronomer at a meeting, international meeting of the IEEE Plasma Sciences Division. He was a radio astronomer, and he could see the connection between his observations in the radio field and what these plasma scientists were talking about. So the hard evidence has already come in that shows that the electric universe model is uh, not only viable but it's predictive and yet it's it's ignored uh, and we're denigrated as being cranks and so on. While you are talking about the beliefs you, we acquired when we were kids, yes. one of the beliefs I acquired in school is that the space is a vacuum. So how can electric <laughs> yes. phenomena occur in a vacuum? That's right, uh, but when we got into space with the uh, first spacecraft, uh, it was a, a total surprise the amount of uh, electromagnetic uh, activity once you got beyond the Earth's atmosphere. And uh, since then, it's realized, of course, that uh, space is full of plasma. When I say full, that means that uh, there are only a few particles <coughs> per square, uh, per cubic meter, for instance. However, when you look at the colossal volume of space, then you realize that uh, that amounts to an awful lot of matter. And not only that, an awful lot of electricity. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned several times plasma. From mm -hmm. what I understand, plasma is a very common phase of matter, but most people don't know what it is. Can you explain what a plasma is in simple terms? <coughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> yes. Um, <coughs> On, on the Earth, we generally see solids, liquids, and gases, and all of these uh, substances have equal numbers of uh, positive and negative charges, and they're all uh, bound to some degree, which means that we don't witness what's called a plasma. Because if you were to heat uh, a solid, liquid, or a gas to a certain uh, very high temperature, uh, not only would all of the particles come apart, but they uh, would then... Uh, the atoms themselves would start losing electrons. And when you have an atom that's lost an electron, it becomes positively charged. And, of course, the negative charged electrons are then freely moving. That is a plasma. We've all seen it, of course. Um, there's a plasma inside your fluorescent tube. Uh, there is uh, those novelty plasma balls. 
and inside those plasma balls you'll note that the electric current flows in uh, writhing filaments. They look almost as if they're alive. And this is one of the uh, things that the plasma universe and the electric universe brings to astronomy, this aliveness, uh, instead of these dead objects just coalescing under the force of gravity. So plasma is also seen in lightning uh, and in a flame and in arc welding and so on. So they are, it is around us, but we don't recognize it necessarily as being a plasma. So, so there's no... Um mainstream cosmology and mainstream astronomy and science and NASA, for example, don't dispute the fact that there is plasma Not at all. In the You'll universe. See in the text, yeah. You'll see in textbooks it's stated that 99.99 uh, repeating percent of the universe is in the form of plasma. That's the visible universe. So in other words, stars, stars themselves are supposed to be uh, balls of plasma where the temperature is sufficiently high that the atoms within it are mostly dissociated into um, positively charged particles and electrons. Mm -hmm. So they don't they don't dispute that or they recognize that. But so where do you where's the division then in terms of the 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 effect of plasma or how plasma plays into uh, the understanding of the universe between the EU theory, electric universe theory, and the orthodox yes. theory? Uh, that's a good another good question. Uh, the difference is that uh, astronomers are taught a form of plasma physics which is called magnetohydrodynamics. It's a great word which uh, means nothing to most people. But what it means simply is that it is a magnetized fluid. Magnetohydrodynamics. Yeah. Uh, it's treated as being electrically neutral. However, it contains a magnetic field. And this, uh, the theory of magnetohydrodynamics is reasonably complex. Uh, but Hans Alfein, the father of plasma cosmology and a Nobel Prize winner, pointed out in his Nobel Prize winning speech that this, the use of magnetohydrodynamics in space was incorrect. In fact, it was a mistake that he'd made. But no one wanted to hear by that stage because everyone was on the bandwagon of uh, you know, the mathematical the theory of uh, magnetohydrodynamics. And this is one of the other problems with modern science is this uh, fixation on mathematics because all that mathematics can do is describe what you observe. It cannot explain it. So you have to be very careful. You have to get your concepts right before you actually using mathematics to help uncover the secrets of the universe. And at present, the scientific concepts are way off uh, the beam. <laughs> mm -hmm. You mentioned, um, if I correctly understand, so the space is made uh, mostly of plasma, plasma is conductive, and you mentioned discharges. So yes. are we to understand that uh, there are electric discharging occurring within and between celestial bodies like comets, planets, <coughs> stars? Mm -hmm. Perhaps the, uh, the most uh, obvious uh, plasma discharge is um, a comet. Now back in the 19th century, uh, if you get hold of um, uh, scientific journals, then you'll see references to the electrical nature of comets mm. because at the end of the 19th uh, century and the beginning of the 20th, uh, discharge tubes, you know, the old Geissler tubes where people would put a discharge into a rarefied gas and see all these wonderful effects, mm. they were a kind of um, 
uh, almost a, a toy of the scientists at that time, and they were fascinated by the things they saw. And they could see the uh, relevance of that, those phenomena with that of the comet. So you would see references to the electrical nature of comets. But that all went away when the dogma came in that electricity doesn't do anything in space and therefore a comet cannot be an electrical discharge. This is this, is this hang-up, this problem that si uh, astronomers are not taught uh, the real plasma physics uh, that plasma cosmologists work with. And that shows that if you just have two uh, regions of plasma moving past one another, they will actually induce electric currents in each other. So certainly, right throughout space, there's electrical phenomena right in front of the astronomer's uh, eyepieces, if you like, uh, but they cannot see it. it it's a, a very odd thing to uh, witness science in this state where uh, you, it's obvious to some people what's going on and to others mm. it's completely uh, opaque. So, so mainstream science, and I'm going to blame NASA. I'm going to use NASA as the word for mainstream science here instead of keeping saying mainstream science because they're responsible yes. for everything. Um, so <laughs> not NASA... Um, contends that electricity does nothing in space, mm -hmm. yes. as in it doesn't exist? It's, it's, it's not a phenomenon to be concerned about, except over very short distances. Right. Uh, they will acknowledge uh, some electrical effects uh, associated with the sun, but nothing like uh, a circuit which extends out past the Earth and mm -hmm. uh, beyond the solar system. Even though this, this can be shown to be true. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, Hans Alfein drew the electric circuit of the sun. Mm -hmm. uh, the only mistake he made was to assume that the sun was the generator of uh, the, the power in that circuit. Uh, what we've been able to show is that the um, sun is connected beyond the solar system mm -hmm. uh, to the galactic circuit, and the galactic circuit is connected beyond to other galaxies and so on. It's mm. uh, a hierarchical situation which is the kind of thing that you see in electrical phenomena, is this repeated patterns on different scales. And um, you mentioned a, a circuit in the solar uh, system. Yes. Uh, what are the specifics of uh, this circuit? Where does it start from, where does it stop, and what's going on within this circuit? <laughs> well, it's like being embedded in, in a, you know, the insides of a radio. All you can see is what's going on very close to you. Mm. Um, if you're miniaturized to that extent and we're certainly miniaturized in the universe um, what you what Hans Alfein did was to draw a circuit which has current flowing in at the poles of the Sun and flowing out in a sheet if you like uh, the solar wind as it's called it's not mm -hmm. a wind it's a current sheet uh, that flows out and then at some point it curves back and comes in again at the poles and he thought that the sun was driving this current. But at the poles of the sun, there are magnetic field lines that extend off and don't come, you know, they be out beyond the solar system. And one of the first things you learn about electric currents flowing in space is that they follow the magnetic field lines. So there are currents flowing in at the poles of the sun. And the question then uh, that occurred to myself and to Professor Don Scott, who's a retired professor of electrical engineering and one of my close colleagues, uh, was how exactly does this connect to the galactic circuit? And we're, we're working on that now. And we have um, 
the concepts in place because you can actually look into deep space and see some of these stellar circuits lit up. Uh, they're called planetary nebulae. Mm -hmm. So by looking at these things in deep space, we can uh, transfer that model down to the size of our own sun. And uh, I think we'll be able to show that um, the extended circuit of the sun beyond uh, the heliosphere, as it's called. Hmm. So... Um your the the electric universe uh, theory or uh, research, let's say, contends that the forces that interact between uh, bodies in the universe are uh, or planets or etc. is electrical, whereas NASA, for example, will say that the main force is gravity. Is that correct? Uh, <laughs> we don't argue with uh, the use of the word gravity. The thing that NASA don't understand is that gravity itself is an electrical force. Um, right. This is one of the simplifications of the electric universe. It is possible to explain uh, magnetism uh, and the electric um, forces of gravity all in, uh, in the same simple terms. You don't have to invent forces every mm -hmm. time you find something different. You don't have to invent another force. Yep, For instance, um, you know, astronomers know that there's something wrong with the theory of gravity, and this is why there's been uh, efforts to tinker with it. And there's this thing uh, called MOND, Modified Newtonian Dynamics, where gravity is supposed to uh, work differently on the very large scale compared to uh, our scale. But this is just uh, throwing in ad hoc ideas. Mm -hmm. The Electric Universe model, which I've actually shared on my website, shows that uh, you can understand gravity and the solar system and the way it works, like clockwork, uh, only if you have um, a theory of gravity which is modified by the amount of charge on a body. Uh, we already see comets uh, changing their orbits, and one of the reasons is that they're discharging and therefore they're changing their charge uh, nature, mm -hmm. and in doing so they actually change the force between themselves and the sun. Now, uh, the standard model, all it can do is talk about the jets on the uh, surface of the comet making that change. In other words, this is all that astronomers have got to work with. Is It deals with things like boats moving through water, you know, uh, where you have uh, shock waves and all this kind of thing. They'd, they've got no idea of looking at electrical activity, which has really cut them off from uh, the nature of the universe. Hmm. So... Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, uh, from a NASA scientist's point of view, if I asked such a person uh, what mm -hmm. gra gravity is, would he be able to tell me? No. It's just <laughs> a word, no. really. There's no scientist on Earth can tell you what it is. They can describe it, and they can use Einstein's um, uh, metaphysics, that is, you know, trying to describe it in terms of warped space. Well, you can't warp space. Space is merely a concept. Mm -hmm. you know, a, loca a location in three dimensions and how do you go about warping that mm -hmm. um, so it's that's a, a geometric approach which uh, doesn't explain a darn thing it doesn't explain how matter happens to warp space it doesn't explain what matter is and it doesn't explain what space is you're left with uh, virtually nothing except the mathematics uh, the electric universe uh, says that gravity is uh, very similar to the magnetic force and you know how if you put a lot of um, tiny 
magnets on a uh, slippery surface like a glass tabletop mm. they will all spin around so that they align and point in the same direction mm-hmm. and they'll try and uh, move towards one another and attach themselves like a daisy chain that's how gravity works only what we're talking about here is a, a very tiny distortion in all of the particles that make up every atom and now this gives rise to a number of very interesting uh, uh, answers to, to questions which are not explained and that is why you cannot shield from gravity it's simply because all of the particles in every atom in the body whether it's their metals or non-metals or doesn't matter what they are will respond similarly to the presence of matter that's nearby and uh, they will all t- try to uh, align themselves and since they're free to move within the atom they will all tend to align and uh, form little football shapes instead of spheres and those little football shapes have a positive end and a negative end and it's the attraction between those positives and negatives that give you that weak force of gravity it answers the puzzle mm-hmm. why is the force so weak it's because the distortion of subatomic particles is absolutely minuscule mm-hmm. uh, it sounds very obtuse of NASA to um, to ignore what's right in front of their noses in that sense. Um, I mean, there's a decent understanding of electricity and electromagnetism um, yes. and it has been for a long time and it can explain, as you just described, uh, many things that NASA is grappling with and has been grappling with for a long time. But, and, they, and as you've said, they're, they're forced to invent uh, <laughs> new forms of new forces that don't, yes. They can't explain black holes when, when they could simply yes. explain it through well-known, well-known uh, <laughs> forces like electricity. I mean, I, I don't, I don't understand why. Well, how, this is how, the power. Yeah, this is the power of the paradigm that I mentioned earlier. Uh, once you're uh, within a culture that believes in a particular way of thinking, it's very difficult to break free of that. It took me decades to let go of Einstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I thought people are going to think I'm crazy but uh, I find now I'm in good company there's thousands of scientists around the world uh, most of them in the Natural Philosophy Alliance uh, who uh, have come to the same conclusion uh, often from different angles but the result has always been the same that uh, Einstein's theories don't make sense mm-hmm. and this is why you publish so many books and so many people read them and then they say I still don't get it mm. yeah. because fundamentally it doesn't make sense Absolutely. There's, no, there's nothing difficult about the electric universe. It's the sort of thing you could teach kids in um, high school very easily. <coughs> and also, it, it raises um, the interesting real questions that we have to pursue in the future. Uh, the big questions are not answered because uh, we, we just haven't, we're nowhere near being able to answer them. Mm-hmm. And this, this is the humility of the, the electric universe as well. We're not saying we have a, a theory of everything. Uh, there's no such thing at present. <clears throat> mm. Well, you mentioned um, discharge, discharge of comets, and uh, when you say that, I had a picture in my mind of a, a bug entering a bug zapper. Uh, that's the way you call this uh, device, I think. And uh, is there any, le- any legitimacy in this uh, analogy? Uh, could you just repeat that? I, I didn't quite catch the... Yeah. You mentioned uh, discharges occurring in comets, and... Um, yes. When you when you say this phrase, I had a, a picture in my mind of a bug entering a bug zapper, and I wanted to know if there's any legitimacy in this analogy. 
Uh, you mean uh, like an iceberg or something? No, a bug entering a bug zapper. Oh, a bug. A yeah. bug zapper. Oh, I beg your pardon. Oh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm, That's me. <laughs> My pardon. Oh, sorry, Pierre. Yeah, no, I should be able to understand you. I was in uh, France uh, not too long ago. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, um, well, let me think about that. Not entirely, because a bug is an inert... Yeah, electrically inert, so it comes into an electric field where it acts as a, a, a instantaneous conductor for a moment, and it gets uh, fried by mm. by the electric discharge that passes through it. A comet is actually a charged body, <clears throat> so uh, when it's uh, travelling very slowly through the outer reaches of the solar system, it picks up whatever electrons and uh, positively charged particles it needs to establish um, equilibrium with its environment <clears throat> and that's all very fine but when it starts to accelerate towards the sun it, it comes hurtling in uh, in the later stages of its travels in its orbit and it's finding itself in a, a region of space which because it's approaching the highly charged object the sun is uh, sufficiently different that it can't adjust to its environment without beginning to glow in other words, it becomes a glow discharge, and that's what forms the coma. And that coma can become huge. Um, and then as it gets closer to the sun, the surface begins to break down, and that breaks down in these tiny electrical jets uh, known as uh, cold cathode discharges, uh, where electrons begin to be stripped and atoms begin to be stripped from the surface minerals. Hmm. Now... The idea that uh, comets are dirty snowballs comes from the uh, picture that we've had for centuries now of the formation of the solar system from a cloud of dust and gas. And the uh, only explanation they could come up with for comets was that there must be bits left over and mm -hmm. they're well beyond the solar system and occasionally they get nudged and come into the solar system. But all of the evidence is against that. And this is a funny thing about evidence. You know, it uh, can be misconstrued, ignored, shoved in a basket, too hard basket, and so on. And uh, people will continue to uh, tell you stories about how the world works, and yet there's all these ignored bits of data sitting in their um, uh, filing cabinet. Mm. And this is one of the features of our um, conference next uh, March in uh, Albuquerque. We'll be talking about the evidence. Uh, so the evidence is all there uh, that what's going on on a comet is electrical discharge in nature because these cathode jets have very, um, fi they're finely collimated. Uh, in other words, that they come out in a very thin jet. And this is one of the surprises that astronomers uh, had when one of the spacecraft flew through these jets and they said it was like bursts of machine gun fire. In other words, it was only there for a brief instant and then they're out of it. Uh, which is the kind of thing you expect from a jet like that. It's not what you expect from a comet that's just a, uh, slowly sublimating and, and dust and materials rising off its surface. None of that is uh, what you would expect um, from such a, a uh, just a heat-driven uh, model. But there's many other things, of course, about comets which show that uh, it's uh, obviously an electrical discharge phenomenon. Yeah, it's, it's brightness for one thing. I mean, how, how yes. does the NASA standard model explain how they're able to even see them. I mean, we can see them if they pass by at certain points. 
in order yes, to open our eyes. I mean, that, is that white supposed to be snow and ice? What? <laughs> it's supposed to be material that's been uh, uh, lifted off the surface by heat. And, and burned, it's in, incandescent, and, so it's burning off. No, it's not burning off. It's uh, being uh, lit up and fluorescing in the ultraviolet light from the sun. Oh. Um, it's, so it's the uh, ultraviolet light that's supposed to do all the damage. Um, but this, even this doesn't uh, fit the, uh, the observations. Um, the I mean, have there been any comets that have been far enough away from the sun where they have been burning br more brightly than they should oh, yes. have based on that theory? Yes, comets have flared in the outer solar system, you know, beyond Saturn's orbit. Uh, Comet Halley did that, I think. <clears throat> and what was the explanation uh, for that? Oh, it must have hit something. Oh, <laughs> a comet crash. See, this yeah. is the thing. Astronomers only have collisions and collapses and explosions to work with. They're, they're all mechanical things. This is it. So they, yeah. they have their predictions, and yes. then it doesn't happen, so they have to account for why... What they predicted didn't happen, so something unpredictable happened, like it got sidewinded by another asteroid or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, and when you look at the, the vast uh, volumes in space, the chances of that happening are millions to one. Yeah. Um, but it happens repeatedly. There are uh, many comets that have done that, and quite often uh, they can be associated with uh, solar flares, solar activities, um, which have preceded the flare and uh, which occur about the time when the disturbance arrived at the comet. Hmm. So the electrical disturbance from the sun once again seems to be involved. The same happened with Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9 when uh, all of its bits uh, hit Jupiter. Mm -hmm. None of the bits actually hit Jupiter. They all were disintegrated uh, in the ionosphere by electrical discharges mm -hmm. between the, the fragments and the uh, planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is why uh, the astronomers were amazed at the brightness of the uh, impacts. They didn't expect to see much at all. Yeah. Uh, and also there was a lot of electrical activity. The auroras and so on uh, lit up. And uh, so um, the whole thing was an electrical encounter. Mm -hmm. it, gives, so, <clears throat> it gives a very different... Um, <clears throat> it gives me a very different take on, um, on comets, asteroids and uh, mm -hmm. meteorites. Does it mean yes. that actually the threat is not only mechanical, i.e. a direct impact, but also the threat can be electrical in nature? Uh, the threat is largely contrived. Um, <clears throat> what will happen, uh, because the Earth itself is a charged body, uh, when a, a large object uh, approaches the Earth and reaches its electrical environment, uh, the most likely thing to happen is that in the magnetosphere and the ionosphere, the incoming object will discharge and be destroyed. I think this is what happened at Tunguska. In fact, there's uh, strong geological evidence from Russian scientists that uh, there were discharges from ground into the, uh, towards the object. Um, there were eyewitness re reports as well. Mm. And on the ground you find what are called diatremes, which are geological formations which can be explained as a uh, a lightning bolt from beneath the Earth uh, out towards uh, space. Hmm. Didn't they fire a at a comet? I can't remember the name of the comet. NASA fired a uh, Temple One. Yeah, a copper rod or something, <coughs> and there was a discharge seen before it actually impa impacted. There was a discharge yes. between the um, 
and yes, which, so wasn't, which wasn't supposed to happen. Of course not. No, well, that was a total surprise. I was listening to the uh, control room uh, when uh, when it happened, and uh, it was total shock and surprise. Hmm. <coughs> An explanation was uh, put forward later, which said that it must have hit a thin uh, outer crust before it actually hit the body of the comet. Well, that's mm. just at, at hockery at its worst. Yeah. Because uh, when the experiment was announced about four years earlier, I went on record on my website uh, with my predictions and I said that if the comet was discharging at the time, which it was, there was likely to be an electrical discharge between the comet projectile and the comet body before it actually struck the comet. Mm -hmm. I also predicted that there would be a shift in the discharge activity on the comet because suddenly it splattered uh, highly conductive copper ions uh, into a kind of atmosphere above the comet. So that region would become highly conductive and any discharges nearby would switch to it. The other thing I said was that the discharge or the outburst would be more energetic than they expected. And that was certainly true because they couldn't photograph the crater, which was one of the main aims of that particular experiment. The, the, all of their cameras were blinded by the outburst. Hmm. In terms of NASA ignoring this electrical or electric nature of, of the universe, let's say, what... What are the problems of that for us as a, as a species? What, what are we losing out on? Because some people might say, well, you know, the universe is a big place. Strange yes, things I happen. understand. You know, yeah. I mean, what's, what's, is there a real downside? Oh, yes, yes, yes. There's a great downside here because uh, what we're missing is probably one of the greatest leaps forward in science uh, in human history because uh, my work... It, dovetails with that of my colleague uh, David Talbot uh, from Portland, Oregon. And he spent a lifetime uh, studying the ancient records globally uh, of what was going on in the sky and all of the stories of the ancient uh, sky gods, the planetary gods. I mean, they have the same thing here in the Australian Aborigines. Um, have their stories of the dream time where there's a rainbow serpent that changed the uh, face of the earth and uh, did all sorts of amazing things when there were two suns in the sky and a, a ra the rainbow snake uh, swallowed one of them. All of these kinds of things have a, a, an actual explanation in terms of plasma physics but they have no explanation in standard astronomy. And the result of that is that our cultures are built around stories we don't understand but the electric universe illuminates those as well. Mm -hmm. So we begin to see our real place in the scheme of things, and that is a liberating thing. Mm. And it's something that the human race desperately needs, I think, because we are present behaving uh, quite irrationally. Uh, when you look at our situation in the universe, and here we are fighting over petty mm -hmm. uh, things, uh, we're destroying our environment uh, willy-nilly. Uh, we have a f uh, this... Um, unresolved fear of things from space, uh, you know, doomsday. Mm -hmm. The fear of doomsday is widespread and we don't understand it. The electric universe explains all of this and uh, I think there will be uh, uh, an explosion, not just in science, but in culture and the arts and uh, everything uh, as a result. So, Okay, well that would be definitely a positive, but <laughs> what, I, what I'm understanding is, um, from what you're saying, maybe... What I'm inferring maybe is that um, 
these ancient stories of things happening in the sky and gods and different things can be explained by the electrical electric universe theory. Yes. But what what would they explain uh, about those myths? How would they make them apparent to us, and what would we learn from? Well, the the imagery that was used, uh, for instance, the thunderbolt that Jupiter held um, was sculpted by ancient peoples and it bears no resemblance to anything that we consider to be lightning today. You know, the old um, mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> jagged lightning bolt. It, the lightning bolt of the gods has a shape which is known as a plasmoid. It's a very convoluted shape. It's a bit like a, uh, a football with a pinch in the middle and uh, we're sometimes with uh, flames or something emitting from uh, the ends. Uh, this has nothing to do with earthly lightning, but it, it is the form that uh, a discharge takes in uh, a very thin plasma, the thin plasma of space. Now, we can actually go back before historical records and look at the petroglyphs, that's the rock carvings around the world and there's one particular figure which stands out and is repeated in its thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions around the world and it's called the squatter man figure it looks like uh, somebody who's um, squatting with their legs at right angles to their body and uh, then their uh, calves coming down to the ground if you like and then their arms are upraised at right angles to their body but beneath the elbows and the knees of these characters are two bright circles, or two circles. And the question was, what on earth does this represent? Well, generally it was just a, thought to be a kind of a stylized human figure, and thus the squatter man. Mm -hmm. But uh, a leading plasma physicist whose uh, one of his claims to fame is that the, what's known as plasma instabilities are named after him because he studied them in very high energy electrical discharges and they take on a series of forms which are quite distinct and one of them looks when you look at it side on looks like the squatter man complete with the two rings or the two circles between the um, elbows and the knees and uh, it's so clear and it, it works so well that uh, with the rock carvings that and the other forms of the rock carvings because he's identified the other forms of plasma instabilities. What it means is that ancient peoples saw in the sky something quite phenomenal and that was an electrical discharge within the solar system between planets. And of course that is impossible according to astronomers. Hmm. That sounds like, uh, that suggests that these primitive ancient cave people uh, knew more about the nature of our universe than NASA does. Yes. And this is why we should listen to them more carefully and not to dismiss what they have to tell us as being mere uh, myth and legend and nothing to do with reality. And do, do you think that any, anything they, that were described in these myths and legends and carved onto cave walls, etc., were, mm. were indicative of some kind of a, a close encounter with maybe a comet or something that had a direct impact on these people's lives rather than just a... Something. Well, when the pyramids were built, um, <clears throat> the stories were, were even then a memory, so something that happened in prehistory, but which was memorialized uh, by the ancient civilizations, which, of course, as we know, seem to spring from nowhere. 
well, they they sprang from the uh, the ruins of whatever there was yeah, before that. Mm -hmm. It means that the history of the human race and of the Earth and of the solar system uh, has a very dramatic uh, recent uh, chapter, and it's one that we can p actually piece together to uh, a fair degree, and it fits with what is now believed by astronomers uh, to be. Uh, the most likely place to find life in the universe, and that is um, uh, planets associated with brown dwarfs, uh, small stars that uh, glow dimly, mm -hmm. but with sufficient energy to uh, be life-giving, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. It seems that uh, the history of the Earth was involved in one of those types of systems. Now, this just seems like complete science fiction, but we've been able to um, piece the evidence together and that appears to be the case. Now, what the ancients was, were seeing and recording on the rocks were some of the final um, pages of that last chapter of the history of the solar system where the Earth was uh, being monstered by uh, planets like Mars and Venus uh, up close and personal. And when planets get close enough that their electrical environments clash, then you will get these uh, uh, colossal plasma discharge phenomena. And this is what the ancients were representing on the rocks. They thought it was so important and so amazing and so terrifying that it was the most important thing they could do because uh, I know that um, the plasma physicist uh, who made the connection said he tried to chisel in a piece of rock uh, what these people had done. He said it was damned hard work. He didn't know how they actually accomplished it. So they were... They were motivated. They were motivated. It mm. gives some uh, inkling as to some of our modern fears and motivations which we don't understand. And of course, um, in, uh, in psychiatry and psychology, it's felt that uh, if you can understand what really happened in your past, then uh, it's possible to heal from it. And I think the human race is desperately in need of some kind of uh, global couch to lie upon and, uh, and healing mm -hmm. uh, because oh. our behavior is quite erratic. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it doesn't take uh, a lot of imagination to get to the point where you see that uh, these ideas of doomsday and uh, these experiences that you're talking about in a relatively recent past uh, mm. on our planet, we're probably talking maybe between 10 and 20,000 years ago. Yes. Uh, that they had experiences with close passages with other celestial bodies that really shook the planet up and this led to these ideas of doomsday because this wasn't a pleasant experience I'm presuming for the people on the planet right being strafed by uh, no, no, uh, electrical discharge uh, there, was a, there was a tendency too on the survive, part of the survivors to blame those who were destroyed as being the people who were responsible for bringing all this terrible wrath of the gods upon us mm -hmm. and this them and us attitude is still obvious in modern society you know we're the true believers you're the infidels uh, you yeah, know, well, the deniers it even occurs in science where uh, beliefs come in and you're called a denier if you challenge uh, the, yeah. uh, the present belief um, so to understand that, I think, is liberating uh, as well because you can see that our warlike behavior is quite irrational. Uh, mm -hmm. It's an attempt to recreate the uh, terrible destruction that mankind um, suffered uh, in what he felt was doomsday, the end of the world. 
So, yeah, I can imagine how it may have led ultimately into the creation of religions, and that's one of the major causes of conflict in the world and has been for so long. Yes, and by not understanding what they mean, yeah. uh, the conflicts will not end. I think uh, NASA, should, NASA should just go ahead and incorporate as a religion. Because <laughs> it's pretty much... Uh, well, modern astronomy, uh, cosmology uh, has been um, uh, compared to a religion by practicing astronomers, uh, some well-known astronomers. Uh, Fred Hoyle was one, I think. Uh, um, uh, Dr. Halton Arp, who's uh, shown that the Big Bang uh, theory is based on incorrect uh, interpretation of the evidence. Uh, these people, when they try and challenge uh, the standard views, have their evidence denied and um, in, such, in much the same way as uh, you know, any religion does. Yeah, heretics are... Heretics, well, they don't burn them today. They just... Uh, uh, Ostracize them, yeah. Most of the people who are at the um, cutting edge, uh, quite a few of them have committed suicide as a result of uh, you know, the kind of reception they get. That's terrible. I was wondering... <clears throat> Those um, episodes of um, cosmic uh, turmoil, mm -hmm. do you think they could be cyclical in nature? No. <clears throat> I'm pleased to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, what happened then was an incident which uh, probably happens uh, throughout the universe on a fairly regular basis, but is one which... Uh, uh, we're unlikely to witness again... Uh, in the history of the human race, it's the kind of thing where two stars are captured, uh, where, you know, one star captures another. And, of course, in gravitational theory, that's practically an impossibility. <clears throat> but in the electric universe, um, where you understand gravity as an electrical phenomenon, it's uh, something that is to be expected as a natural course of events. This is one of the reasons why you see so many um, star systems, which are multiples, you know, binaries and triples and so on. It's far more than you would expect from the gravitational accretion model of star formation. But it is the kind of thing you expect um, in the electric universe model. And the history of the Earth and the human race is involved with the capture of a brown dwarf by the sun. That's, it's as simple as that, and it's also as complicated as that. Uh, planets are not formed the way we're taught. Um, planets are formed in what is, in effect, a, a lightning bolt in a uh, cosmic cloud. And this is exactly what astronomers have discovered in recent years and have been uh, blown away by it because they didn't expect it. You do not expect to see stars strung along a glowing filament like uh, beads on a cosmic string. Hmm. So, what you're, just so, uh, to make sure I understand you correctly, what you're, the, the event that you're talking about that we won't see again was, um, is this the same as the event that is the events that were described in these ancient cave drawing, drawings? Uh, yes, they're not same. so much described. Various right. parts of the episodes uh, were okay. remembered, and so on. And by using uh, our understanding of modern science we can try and piece together in a forensic manner uh, what was being discussed. It's, okay. it's, in fact, this is one of the keys of the electric universe. It came from uh, realizing that you needed to apply the same kind of forensic techniques that um, 
detectives do in trying to piece together a story from a whole lot of unreliable witnesses. Mm-hmm. And this is what uh, my friends uh, Dave Talbot and some of the other comparative mythologists have done. And using this technique, uh, it's amazing what you can uncover. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been able to uh, produce the uh, the prime suspects in all of this mayhem. And uh, in the process, my job has been to try and figure out how this works in terms of um, known physics, mm-hmm. because none of it conforms to modern astronomy. And uh, it, all, it all works. This is the beauty of it. Uh, Modern astronomy cannot even explain why the solar system works like clockwork Mm -hmm. because um, uh, a gravitational system of more than two bodies is inherently unstable. It should just fall apart, fly Mm -hmm. apart uh, in a relatively short space of time in cosmic terms. But that's not what we observe. The uh, solar system operates uh, like a clock and, of course, this has led to all sorts of um, theorizing based on retro-calculating back into you know, billions of years. You can't do that. Mm. Uh, the solar system has a history. It's a dynamic uh, thing. It's a living thing almost. It is electrically powered and it responds to electrical forces in ways that are just not um, countenanced at present. Mm. So it was, it was a close... You said it was a brown dwarf being captured mm-hmm. by our sun, and then a, an interaction between the planet, our, our planet, and, and this brown dwarf. Yes, the interactions that followed uh, involved electrical exchanges <clears throat> between bodies in the solar system if they came close together. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've figured out that, um, and it's, I've shared all this on my website too. Uh, that the exchanges work in such a way that it seems likely that that's the this electrical exchanges, these uh, interplanetary thunderbolts, are what produced the stability that we see now because the planets will space themselves apart so they don't keep doing it. Mm-hmm. T- today we know, for instance, that um, the cometary tail of Venus, which is actually a, an electrical discharge, a very uh, thin um, dark mode discharge, reaches to the Earth's orbit <coughs> and the Earth's tail reaches Mars. And when it does, Mars suffers global dust storms and uh, its uh, ionosphere clears of a blue uh, haze so that uh, astronomers can see through the blue haze. In the past centuries, it was known as the blue clearing of Mars. All of these are electrical things, but they're very minor now compared with what would happen if those planets came much closer to Mm -hmm. the Earth. So um, if it's possible, can you describe the kind of experiences for the people on this planet at the time uh, what I mean are we talking just about you know lightning bolts <laughs> raking the earth and chasing people around or I mean I'm, I'm presuming it would have also cause a lot of um, kind of seismic activity, seismic activity yeah. movement within yes. the planet well that's true in fact the earthquakes are a form of underground lightning Um, Hmm. volcanic and earthquake activity Uh, the energies of earthquakes have never been well explained by shifting rocks but if you uh, factor in um, you know underground thunderbolts then the um, you have the energy and also some of the weird effects that are observed above earthquakes like um, electron counts in the ionosphere and uh, uh, glows and gas releases and all sorts of things uh, on the surface, uh, you realize that uh, electricity plays a part. Mm. Now, 
So there would have been a lot of earthquake activity. There would have been um, uh, tidal effects, which uh, would have been rather horrific. Um, uh, you know, the sea washing over the land and all this kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, the actual piecing together of that part of the story has been a life's work of another one of uh, the Thunderbolts team and uh, his name is Eduardo Cardona and he's published a series of books which give the most uh, complete uh, documentation of what was witnessed and how it can be interpreted in terms of this scenario that I'm talking about. Mm. Uh, it's a monumental piece of work and it's still, I think uh, we're up to about the fifth volume, uh, but it, it it's um, fascinating reading yeah. uh, because it, it be, you begin to understand more about who we are and also the fact that astronomers are partly right when uh, they say that uh, the most likely place to find life in the universe is um, as a satellite or on the satellite of a brown dwarf. Hmm. But, if, but of course they're hampered because they don't understand what a star is. Uh, the real answer is even more amazing than they envisage uh, and this is the kind of thing which uh, we've been able to uncover <clears throat> from descriptions of what the sky looked like before uh, our earlier system uh, was captured by the sun. Mm -hmm. I mean this raises uh, amazing thoughts like uh, we uh, are interlopers, we're the aliens in this solar system. <laughs> mm -hmm. think ideas like that yeah. which uh, really sets you thinking um, about our real place in the universe and uh, the amazing uh, uh, business of life and uh, life in the universe and uh, how does it begin uh, all of these questions suddenly open up with new vistas new, mm. they, they provide new questions but the whole thing uh, I think would inspire uh, kids at school to return to science right now they're yeah. leaving in droves mm -hmm. because it is this uh, heavy mathematical theoretical deductive approach which is boring yeah? Yeah. it is boring except for those people who like to play those games mm -hmm. and of course uh, they're the people now who are telling us they can practically read the mind of God no, yeah. they're looking in the mirror they're just looking at a mathematician mm -hmm. yeah uh, God was more than a mathematician, if if you can use those terms. Yeah, yeah. The description of the the events that such a you know discharge between another body would have caused in the planet makes me think of the the biblical deluge, you know, of Noah and even the Exodus and stuff like that. And I mean, it yeah. just leads us back to the idea of how this this misunderstanding of what actually happened. Was yep. was used to create religions, uh, a complete yep. a complete fabrication of uh, just a story made up, a myth made up, and turned into reality, and and, and kind of re retroactively, you know, given <laughs> given reality, and, yes, and, and now also, we all believe it. Yeah, and also given anthropomorphic uh, aspects. Yeah, all of the stories of the uh, uh, heroes and the goddesses and so on, um, and the maidens in distress are all archetypes, um, as has been pointed out by uh, the comparative mythologists and also by people like Joseph Campbell who looked at mm -hmm. um, these uh, archetypes from uh, the past. Mm -hmm. And the archetypes all have an explanation uh, in terms of this uh, recent history of the solar system. Uh, uh, the god Mars, the warlike god Mars, and uh, uh, 
the two aspects of Venus, you know, the beautiful goddess and also the raging monster, the Medusa, yeah. with, the, with the hair of snakes. Well, the hair of snakes was electrical discharge phenomena. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these things can uh, sort of suddenly um, seen in sharp relief uh, when you have the, uh, when you allow the concepts in, and this is part of the problem for people coming to the electric universe, is you have to... Uh, approach it with a beginner's mind and this is uh, how breakthroughs are done you know this mm-hmm. is how you come, go about it you have to let go of your beliefs and that's mm-hmm. a very difficult thing to do but if you can or just suspend your disbelief for a while and allow the big picture to sink in uh, that's when uh, it grabs people and they say to us that it's changed their lives because it, it the meaning stretches far beyond just science yeah uh, Absolutely, I can see that uh, it does. Um, you said that it's unlikely that we'll ever have another experience of a brown dwarf being captured by our our sun yes. and, and and causing this kind of an upset, which is which is good. But I'm wondering about smaller bodies in terms of comets. I mean, if 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 another comet uh, happened to come by, I mean, how close would it have to pass the Earth for there to be some kind of a direct uh, it would have to interfere with the ionosphere, so it would have to be very close. Right. And the uh, effects would be rather like the Tunguska uh, event, uh, which could be devastating over an inhabited area, mm-hmm. a densely populated area. Right. Uh, it, was, it was devastating over that uh, thinly populated area in Russia. Yeah. Um, but the uh, there is evidence that there was a comet that disintegrated uh, in that way, um, Comet Biela in the 1850s. And at the time, there was all sorts of weird effects on the Earth. There was uh, strange weather. Uh, and in North America, there were strange fires. Uh, that was resembling the Chicago, Chicago. Yeah, the Great Chicago Fire. Yep, but that, that was, was it. That was blamed on Mrs. O'Leary's car, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> That's kicked, right, over a, yeah. kicked over a bucket or something? That was NASA's first theory. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but when you read the, the phenomena that actually happened, and there have been books written um, subsequent to that one, I think actually that one too uh, describes some of these things. Uh, the things that happened are typical of what you'd expect from plasma discharge fires, not from normal fires. Yeah, I mean, and also there was falls of sand, uh, uh, which were unexplained. I mean, how do you get sand falling from the sky? Well, you can if you uh, destroy an incoming object uh, in an electrical discharge. In fact, the great sand fields uh, on Earth um, are probably the result of material falling from space, uh, not from any anything geological. Wow. Yeah, I read, uh, a, I read a, a report about just what you're talking about um, from the time of that comet Biela and, mm-hmm. and the Chicago fire, and there was an account of what people describe as fires, strange colored fires moving across open land with no, ob- no obvious source of combustion, and um, people being found who who, uh, who who were in the path of this fire being found dead but unburnt, and, yes, that's and right. pennies or coins fused together yep. in their pocket, and other accounts of tons of pig iron of just raw iron being yes. having melted apparently and then just solidified that's again. Right. Some of the stones, some of the buildings, uh, parts of, uh, sort of flowed like uh, lava. That's so, so, so it was quite weird. Yeah, <clears throat> that's the kind of thing I would expect. Uh, 
most uh, craters uh, are electrical. Um, so the, the famous one in America, Meteor Crater, mm -hmm. uh, is a good example. Uh, they dug into the, the floor of that crater looking for you know, the heavy minerals and metals and things that they expected from the object that impacted, as they said. Uh, they never found any, and they won't, because uh, that was an electrical discharge uh, crater. Uh, mm. Electrical discharge craters are always circular, or um, a series of circles superimposed on one another, so you can get elongated ones, but uh, it's because lightning always strikes the surface at right angles, you know, directly from above, not from an angle from the side. Mm. Uh, and you see on the moon, uh, Almost all of the craters on the moon are circular, um, and also a lot of them are very fresh. And you will also see craters perched on the rims of other craters without causing much damage, which you'd expect from an explosion. Mm -hmm. But uh, a lightning bolt uh, machines the surface, so you can actually test this by looking in a, uh, at electron micrographs of um, surfaces that have been spark machined, and you see the same kind of features in the electron micrograph, and this is once again repeated patterns at different scales, as you see on the moon and on other planetary bodies. So uh, geologists have been limiting themselves to uh, the idea that the Earth is a closed system and that the things we see operating today are the only forces that were in operation in the past. That's just not so. It's just an assumption. And in fact, uh, the forces, electrical forces, can build mountain ranges and carve uh, oceanic uh, trenches and so on in a matter of minutes. Uh, so <laughs> it offers a completely different way of looking at the formation of uh, the layers on the Earth, um, the strata, and yeah. uh, also volcanoes and earthquakes and the various uh, and cratering and so on. It sounds like at present are restricted in their uh, interpretation. So, yeah, it sounds like our planet could have been, it wasn't just formed, it for, was formed and reformed through... Yes, through the, the very active event. birth of a planet, uh, the birth of a planet from another planet, which can happen electrically. Um, a gas giant, for instance, uh, if it's disturbed uh, or the build-up of uh, charge within it is such uh, that the electrical forces uh, overwhelm the gravitational force, you can have material ejected into space. Now, we see this all the time. I mean, the sun ejects billions of tons of matter in the coronal mass ejections, and other stars in deep space are seen to eject phenomenal amounts of matter into space. It's never considered that this is a normal process and that it can happen on all scales. Uh, but this is the way to form a series of moons around a gas giant. They're all... Uh, uh, yeah, their parent is right there. Uh, they were born from the body of the uh, object that they're orbiting. So um, in the process of that birth, of course, uh, the object that's uh, being born uh, can suffer terrible um, surface uh, sculpting, electrical sculpting, and the Earth, I think, suffered that. The ocean basins mm -hmm. are a case in point. Uh, you don't need to have drifting continents. In fact, there's no force on Earth that can cause the continents to drift. Um, but uh, when it was being born, the, um, it seems it had a pole-to-pole -pole discharge which just carved the ocean basins. The reason I say this is that if this was a, a standard process, 
on all planets as they form from a cloud of dust and gas, you would expect to see surfaces on each of the planets that look very similar. You don't. They're all different. They've all got their own history. Mm -hmm. It's the same with comets. This is one of the reasons you can't predict what a comet will do because they've all got their own histories and they are all debris from the uh, sculpting of planetary surfaces. There's an awful lot of Martian uh, material uh, floating around. In fact, the meteorites from Mars are still landing on Earth. The ancients witnessed the sculpting of Mars by one of these cosmic thunderbolts. Wow. They, descri they described it <clears throat> and they actually memorialized it. You can see um, uh, sculptures of um, you know, the scar on Mars and the North American Indians called him Scarface. Hmm. And the question is, uh, and when you look at Mars through a telescope, the biggest feature on the planet, which stretches a third of the way around it, is uh, the giant Valles Marineris electrical mm -hmm. scar. It is an electrical scar without any shadow of a doubt. That's, uh, yeah. And it, it probably extends to mountain ranges also. Yes. Yep. That's, that's a yeah. fascinating Ma idea. Yeah, mountain ranges uh, generally have a, a granite uh, underpinning, and uh, granite rock is intrusive. It's uh, as if it was um, something happened inside a rock to cause the rock to uh, melt and intrude uh, into the surrounding rock. It's as if a lightning bolt shot through the rock, and the fossilised uh, lightning bolt is the granite. And the cause of mountain ranges tend to be uh, granitic which suggests that uh, it was electrical forces which built the mountain range. Also, you have what's called the ridge and gully uh, effect, which is like a Lichtenberg figure. I don't know if you've seen one of those, but the Lichtenberg figure is the pattern you get on a, a non-conducting surface. If you have a spark uh, travel, you, know, you, you induce a discharge across that surface, you get what's called a Lichtenberg figure. Sometimes you'll see it where lightning has struck a golf course and it burns the grass, and you see this radiating pattern of fine uh, structure of this pattern. Well, the ridge and gully pattern uh, in the Himalayas, uh, for instance, is uh, the archetypal Lichtenberg electrical figure. So the, Earth, uh, the Earth's mountain ranges certainly have um, an electrical uh, input to their creation. What's more, it's known that uh, some of these events occurred within the memory of mankind. The um, North American Indians have legends of the formation of uh, uh, significant features in North America and uh, you'll find similar things in other places in Australia. Of course, the Australian Aborigines, uh, their rainbow serpent changed the face of the land, uh, built mountains, dug water holes and river courses and so on. Hmm. So... When geologists uh, have this new tool in their toolbox, it will uh, open up the um, subject enormously because um, there's so much to be done. You can test these things by, for instance, uh, visiting uh, a crater and testing for radioactivity and uh, weird magnetic effects uh, around the crater. Uh, so it's not as if we're just picking these ideas out of the air. Yeah. Um, we have people who have been inspired by uh, what's possible and are going out and doing this work now. It's it's really awe-inspiring in a way to think that um, you know such forces have shaped our planet in the relatively recent mm. past, and you know who knows may do again. Um, yes. But I can understand 
in that sense why there's such a reluctance um, by the mainstream science to, to accept this because it puts us in a it kind of downgrades our position as a, as a species uh, we're simply on this planet and we're not so special anymore and there is this, <laughs> these greater forces that don't really care about us and could just uh, you know decide to strafe the planet and rearrange continents and everything on it and uh, uh, yeah, I think I would take issue with you there because uh, one of the things that his, the um, Electric Universe does in the realm of biology is it gives you some clue as to uh, what is going on at a level below where scientists are looking at present, and that is the connectedness of everything in the universe mm. and also the information that is uh, available in the universe in real time. Well, this is uh, something that's not contemplated at present because Einstein's um, uh, speed of light barrier stands in our way, but it's a barrier that's um, uh, theoretical and it's not real. Uh, for instance, it's been shown that uh, the force of gravity has to act um, in real time. Newton's law does not include time. Therefore, uh, the Earth has to know where the sun is right now in the sky, not where it uh, appears in the sky, uh, because uh, the light doesn't reach us from the sun until eight and a half minutes later, by which time the sun has moved on. Mm -hmm. Now, if the Earth was pulled to where the sun appears in the sky, uh, we would have a slingshot effect, and the Earth and all of the planets would suffer the same problem, and they would all be slung out of the solar system in a period of measured in thousands or tens of thousands of years. And that's not happening. Now, one astronomer has calculated uh, the speed with which gravity has to operate to be able to explain uh, close-orbiting binary stars, because that's the most um, severe test. And uh, he has calculated that the speed of gravity has to be in excess of uh, 2 times 10 to the 10. That's 20 billion times the speed of light. Now, we used to think the speed of light was fast, but when you look at it upon uh, a galactic or a solar system scale, it is a snail's pace, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the sun's light takes you know, hours to get to the outer planets. Uh, that's a snail's pace on the galactic scale. Uh, and to take 100,000 years for the light from a star to travel across the um, galaxy, that is really glacial. Mm. To be a coherent system... The solar system has to have gravity operating far in excess of the speed of light. For a spiral galaxy to form and to be a stable system, it requires that all of the stars in that system know where the other stars are in real time. So it gives you an idea of the speed of gravity. Now, I said earlier that gravity is an electrical force. Mm -hmm. So that means the electric force has to operate at that speed. And uh, it also is required to... Uh, for subatomic particles to be stable because if the particles within the atom don't know where each other is in real time, the whole system will fly apart and we wouldn't have any such thing as a stable atom. So it's a simple requirement you know, for uh, the world that we observe that there is something that operates faster than the speed of light, yeah. much faster. Now, biological systems... Uh, since they're composed of atoms and all atoms seem to know about the presence of other atoms in real time through this gravitational interaction. It means there's an electrical interaction between all the atoms in your body in real time. 
no speed of light delay, no nerve pulse uh, signal delay, uh, which means you operate as a coherent system. Mm-hmm. But it also means that um, you're in communication with all other like systems in the universe, if you like. So what we are is a representation of something that's greater than ourselves. Now, I find this a very empowering thing. Mm-hmm. We are not isolated on this tiny piece of rock around an insignificant star in an insignificant galaxy amongst all the other billions of galaxies. We are a integral functioning part of what appears to be an intelligent universe. And uh, it seems that our purpose is to understand the universe because in so doing, we form the self-referential part. The universe learns about itself through us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes it all, that makes uh, life life worth living. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, so that is there anything more to that in, in in terms of how humanity as a whole therefore interacts with? You're saying we're essentially an integral part of. Uh, of everything else in the universe in a certain sense yes. and, and there's yes. some kind of a communication uh, yep. between humanity as a whole let's say and maybe even individually with mm. uh, on an information level or yes. I, mean, I mean how does informa- how does information relate to to electricity is there anything on that well the electric force is involved and this is one of the as I said the reason I called my work the electric universe is I realized that at the heart of it all the interaction is the electric force operating far in excess of the speed of light. In other words, we have a coherent, real-time existence. Mm-hmm. The problem I face, of course, is that having said that, that uh, discards Einstein's theory of relativity. All that's saying is that using the slow speed of light, you have to uh, take that into consideration when you're trying to um, talk about simultaneity in two different uh, for, for two different observers. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. I mean, that's right. We know the equations work, but what does it mean? It doesn't mean much at all, except that you're using a method of signalling which is slow. Well, that that is borne out by uh, the the idea of a kind of action at a distance that has been yes explored, explored <laughs> that's by right, yeah. science. Quantum quantum theory and yeah. spooky action at a distance is not spooky at all. That's how the universe works. Yeah. And there was a recent article about. Uh, wormholes in space uh, to explain this um, inst- this apparent instantaneous interaction between entangled quantum particles. Mm-hmm. All of this language is misleading and this is the problem with science. It uses a lot of terms and that which are ill-defined, uh, often used in confusing and contradictory ways. When you simplify science and use uh, simple terminology you get back to reality, in my opinion. And uh, the reason quantum theory is merely a recipe book and it's not an explanation of what goes on is because the concepts are missing underneath. Mm-hmm. The essential concept is that there is a force between all matter which operates far in excess of the speed of light. So forget Einstein's theory of relativity and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And that uh, for coherence and information transfer, that is the preferred means of signaling. The other thing is, like gravity, it cannot be shielded. So this is why ESP experiments done in Faraday cages works. Mm-hmm. The Faraday cage is completely transparent to this signalling. Hmm. And, of course, this raises the other issue. If uh, we wanted to contact ET, we wouldn't use radio waves or electromagnetic signalling 
because any intelligent race would not use radio signals to communicate over interstellar distances. What, you, would what? use, you would use this uh, longitudinal electric force. Mm-hmm. And we don't know anything about that. Tesla was uh, heading in that direction. Yeah. Um, but um, so much of his work is a sort of apocryphal. You don't know what, what mm-hmm. he actually discovered and what he didn't. But uh, mm-hmm. certainly the evidence suggests that um, he was aware that the longitudinal electric force was of uh, profound importance. Well, it's amazing to think that uh, if, if mainstream science would just adopt this uh, electric force or electric universe theory and the, and the ideas mm. behind it that are fairly transparent and many of yes. them provable, um, that suddenly we would enter into a whole new realm of science that would probably start yep. to approach kind of mysticism and spirituality even that it, w- it wouldn't, you know, those are terms we give to things that yes. are can't be proven by science, but it seems like they're just waiting there for us to discover. They're just waiting, waiting for us to understand. It's just that our concepts are rooted Flawed. in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah there is all sorts of uh, possibilities ahead uh, in the scientific uh, realm. Uh, once you understand the concepts behind gravity, you can then set about trying to think, well, how do you defeat gravity? If it's an electric force, you can reverse the uh, polarity. It's just that no one's understood what the origin of gravity is uh, within matter, so they haven't been able to figure out how to defeat it. But uh, obviously, this gives you the clue. Yeah. Uh, what you need to look at is dielectrics in a strong electric field, because that will reverse the polarity of the, um, uh, the subatomic particles within that uh, dielectric. So, uh, you, <laughs> you flying saucers and UFOs and things may not be uh, a figment of our imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the other end of the scale, of course, in uh, biology, you realise that uh, medicine and that uh, Western medicine is uh, severely limited by looking at uh, the body in a mechanistic sense and just considering it as a complex chemical interaction. There is far more to it than that, and there are scientists uh, who are working in the forefront of understanding that. Uh, I can mention uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who you've probably heard mm-hmm. of. Yeah. Uh, the cellular biologist Bruce Lipton. Uh, these people are looking at this outside influence in biological systems. And it also relates, of course, to uh, all sorts of nat- natural uh, medicine uh, aspects as well. Mm-hmm. And you, you begin to realize that um, the medical fraternity are actually doing us no service at all in trying to shut down um, attempts to uh, you know, instill natural therapies into the mainstream uh, medical uh, curriculum. And it also applies to uh, manufactured foods too because uh, manufacturing foods based on chemistry is a flawed paradigm and it's very dangerous. Uh, I, I, you know, <laughs> it was like when we were playing with atom bombs in the initial stages. The guys who were doing that didn't know what they were doing. No. They, were, they, were, they were taking on a risk for the whole of humanity without understanding what they were doing. We really have to make scientists more accountable. And one of the ways of doing that is to break down these rigid little disciplines where those involved know more and more about less and less and they don't talk to the people down the corridor because they think that uh, you know, their work has nothing to do with them. 
But when you see this big picture and you can see all of the parts in their relationships, you begin to realize that this is a completely non-functional way of doing science. So institutionalized, over-professionalized, specialized science is not the way to go. Agree with that, yep. Going back to this notion of a longitudinal current, could you mm -hmm. explain how a, an electric current or electric phenomena can be uh, supraluminal, going uh, faster than speed of light? Mm -hmm. the, um, the speed of light is determined by the response of the medium through which it's traveling. Now, when I say medium, of course, uh, the speed of light is uh, supposed to represent the speed of uh, a photon or an electrical discharge, uh, sorry, a transverse wave through um, a vacuum. But you cannot sustain an electric field in a vacuum. It, the matter has to be present. And that doesn't mean charged matter. It just means something that can be distorted to form a little electric dipole. So that means that there is no such thing as a vacuum. It, the empty space is actually teeming, and it's teeming with neutrinos. And neutrinos are standard particles. Pardon me. They're, neutrinos are standard particles, that is, they're structured like all the other subatomic particles, and they can be distorted to form a tiny electric dipole. So what you're looking at in, uh, with light is a disturbance, transverse disturbance, traveling through the medium of neutrinos. Now, we know the speed of light changes when it goes through glass and water and so on. So um, the speed of light is not a constant. It's, it's a variable depending mm -hmm. upon the medium through which it's traveling. This reintroduces the idea of the ether. And Maxwell's equations of electromagnetism require an ether. Einstein did away with the ether and didn't explain how exactly electromagnetic waves would continue to move. Mm -hmm. So he, in, he invented the photon which is supposed to be a massless particle, but there is no such thing in the universe as a massless particle. Mm -hmm. And you forget the Higgs boson, that, that's uh, complete nonsense. All particles must have mass uh, because they contain energy, uh, and the energy is bound up in the motion of uh, particles within particles, if you like. It's a kind of repeated pattern once again. And this is a feature of the electric universe, this kind of uh, fractal nature of the universe, uh, the more you delve into it, you see more and more detail, and it's a repeated pattern. Um, so, we've, I've talked about light, so it takes time to travel through this medium. Gravity, on the other hand, is a polarization of subatomic particles. So, in a vacuum, all of the uh, neutrinos have this distortion, uh, longitudinal distortion, from one end to the other, it's like a, a chain. And as you know, there's a difference between pulling on a chain, if you're standing the other end, you can feel the instant that chain is pulled, you feel it. Whereas if somebody waves the end of this long chain or rope, the wave takes some time to get to you. So this is the difference. Gravity operates by this longitudinal pull mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, electromagnetism or light operates by waving the rope <laughs> and yeah. that takes time to get to the other end so that's the difference it's like dropping also a, uh, a stone into a pond if you have a, uh, a microphone uh, underwater uh, some distance from where you drop the stone in you will hear that uh, stone drop 
very shortly after uh, in the microphone, but the ripple from the stone will take some seconds, uh, even minutes to get to you. Mm-hmm. That's hmm. the difference. Okay, that's a very clear analogy, this uh, chain uh, mm-hmm. rock uh, analogy. Maybe another question you you mentioned previously during the Comet Baila event that yes. it induced some um, weather disruptions. And I was thinking uh, Earth weather is uh, is full of those uh, spiraling uh, phenomena, uh, those anticyclones, those cyclones, those uh, tornadoes, hurricanes, and uh, the yes. lightnings. And um, I suspect, like for the rest of the of the universe, the, our atmosphere, uh, according to mainstream science, is uh, void, or is at least not driven by electric phenomena. Um, uh, what is happening in reality? What's the role of electricity <laughs> in uh, Earth weather? Yes. Uh, there, as I said before, uh, Hans Alfein figured out a circuit for the sun, and the Earth is embedded in that circuit. So are all the planets embedded in the sun's circuit. So our weather is very much dependent upon uh, the electric currents that are flowing uh, between the sun and its environment in the galaxy. Now, this is not something that's uh, input into any uh, weather model or climate model. Um, so you could say that there's no such thing as a weather expert or a climate expert because one of the major factors is missing. When you look at the outer planets, some of the fastest winds in the solar system are on the most distant planets. You know, I think Neptune has uh, uh, winds that uh, exceed you know, thousands of kilometres an hour. Uh, and yet it's the furthest um, planet from the sun and receives very little uh, heat input. On Earth, of course, uh, it's assumed that uh, it's the heat input that uh, drives the weather. Well, certainly it has a significant effect, but the major patterns themselves uh, are better described electrically, particularly the powerful storms when you see those great rotary systems and uh, the towering connections to uh, the upper atmosphere in the clouds and so on. But in recent years, the spacecraft between uh, the Earth and the Sun have been able to trace the magnetic fields. Uh, They call them flux tubes. It's another one of these misleading terms. It doesn't explain anything. They're actually current filaments, uh, like you see in those um, novelty plasma balls, between the Sun and the Earth and they connect to the magnetosphere and now they've found there's uh, charge transferring between the magnetosphere and the ionosphere and the ionosphere and the Earth in all of those weird uh, things seen above big storms, those sprites and elves mm-hmm. and magical names they give them. <laughs> uh, so there's a direct electrical input to our weather systems. It's usually assumed that thunderstorms drive the electrical circuit in the Earth's atmosphere. That's not true. The thunderstorms are merely an effect of um, having power input to the ionosphere and trying to reach the Earth and uh, finding ways to get to the ground the most convenient way. And usually what you'll find is in a um, a leaky capacitor, it'll find a weak spot where it can find a path to ground and that's where the lightning will travel. And so we've seen the lightning travelling now between the ionosphere and the ground. Uh, 
the lightning is not generated in the cloud, it's generated above the cloud and um, it's already waiting uh, for the cloud to act as a path to ground. Now, this has been proven by uh, high altitude balloon flights across uh, thunderstorms. The, the scientist who did it uh, remarked he was amazed to find that the charge was already there. He thought it would gradually build up after one of these lightning bolts instead of that he said it's already there just waiting to go. It's, uh, you know, the trigger is cocked, uh, waiting for, uh, or the gun is cocked, waiting for the trigger to be pulled. So this electrical uh, factor uh, explains lightning because, would you believe, lightning is not explained. They're still puzzling as to how thunderstorms can generate the voltages required to uh, initiate a lightning bolt. Well, the answer is already there, that um, the power comes from without. Mm-hmm. It comes from the sun. It comes from the sun. And then uh, the, you uh, take the next step and you say, well, what about the, um, you know, the power from the sun? And you say, well, that comes from without as well. And all of the features of the sun uh, go to show that this is the case. When you look at a sunspot, you're peering beneath the uh, bright electrical discharge that we call the sun. And beneath the uh, photosphere, it is dark, much cooler. Hmm. There is no there is no nuclear explosion going on inside the sun. Uh, it is a body like any other, only much larger, like any other planet. Uh, and um, the uh, plasma cosmologists have uh, already shown that um, when you form stars in these cosmic clouds along these uh, cosmic lightning bolts, the first elements to be accreted near the, uh, to form the core of a star are the heavy elements. Mm-hmm. That's your, your metals and things, the sort of things that make up a planetary uh, core. And then on the outer breaches, you get the um, lighter elements and then the uh, gases, hydrogen and helium. Uh, and that's the bit that lights up, of course. And this is why we think a star is made of hydrogen, simply because it's the outer atmosphere that's lighting up. Uh-huh. So, if I uh, correctly understand, when a sunspot occurs, it's a electric current that pierces the glowing uh, lighter element surrounding yes. the sun, and that spreads uh, into the solar system. But here comes the paradox. Seemingly, um, apparently, sunspots level are very low for years now. The sun is uh, unusually quiet. And mm-hmm. at the same time, mainstream science claim that uh, we're going through a global warming. How can we reconcile a reduced solar activity with uh, an alleged uh, global warming? I think uh, what we have to do is get used to the fact that uh, there are no guarantees about the sun's uh, power supply. Because it's external and uh, related to our place in the galaxy, it can change and uh, stars have been observed to change quite rapidly. But uh, in general, looking around the nearby stars, that doesn't seem to be uh, something that's going to happen to us, thankfully. However, um, the power input to the sun also has a direct effect on the Earth's weather and uh, the severity of its weather and so on. And this is something that's not looked at at present, it's all put down to global warming, which is a very simplistic and uh, uh, unproven argument. Mm-hmm. In fact, the sun is the source of our energy, so that's where we look to uh, any changes. Uh, 
hopefully in future we'll be able to chart the uh, circuitry of the sun well out beyond uh, our solar system and that will give us uh, some a better weather forecast if you like. As for a human impact on climate I would say that is practically zero. Um, oh, so the, I take it you're not part of Al Gore's consensus then? Oh God no! God, I mean, no. Sci- sci- <laughs> we are with sci- you on this one. <laughs> yeah, well, science is not uh, done by a show of hands, uh, mm. and when you think of the uh, the severe lack of understanding in modern science of just the basics, you know, what is gravity, what is electricity, what is this, what is that, um, you realise that there is no such thing as uh, a real expert on these subjects. Mm. Uh, also, there are plenty of scientists who have pointed out all of the flaws in the global warming, uh, uh, the anthropogenic, I should say, global warming uh, scenario. Um, but of course, they're deniers, which implies, of course, that this is a religious belief. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> they should just call them heretics. I mean, go ahead. And call heretics, them heretics. That's yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about deniers and heretics, you're not talking science anymore. You're no. not dealing with the issues. And these uh, people who are so-called deniers have raised issues which have to be addressed. You cannot ignore them. Mm-hmm. And then from my point of view, uh, I wrote about this on my website too, uh, under the heading of um, global warming in a climate of ignorance. Um, until you understand, get the concepts right, uh, all of these pronouncements are worthless. What we have to do, I think, is just realize that we cannot guarantee uh, the steadiness of the sun's uh, input to the earth. And therefore, uh, all we have to do is try and adjust <laughs> to whatever happens. That's all we can do. You know, mm-hmm. We're not in control. The idea that we can control these things is nonsense. But it's part of this uh, insanity that arose out of our facing doomsday. Yeah, mm-hmm. have you noticed? Have you noticed? As long as I've been interested in science, which is from about the age of four, uh, I've noticed that it doesn't matter what era you're in. There's always some fear of catastrophe, either comets. Comets are the most common one. Mm-hmm. Uh, impacts uh, from comets and so on, uh, or uh, some sort of um, disaster that's going to occur to the Earth, usually from some external source. Mm-hmm. And mankind is desperate to be in control uh, mm-hmm. because of his history, his unknown history or unrecognized history. So once we begin to understand ourselves better, maybe we'll stop hearing off and doing silly things uh, in response to imagined uh, uh, scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just the latest in a long line. What's, what's your take? We... Um have a a tendency to I mean just based on what you're saying about people worried about uh in every in every era people are worried about, you know, uh doomsday from, from above coming. Uh, over the past few years we've been taking quite an interest in in the number of fireballs and meteorites uh, that have been seen and observed and reported uh, uh, in entering our atmosphere, I mean, the most notable one of late was uh, the, the Chelyabinsk one in, in, in Russia earlier yes. this year. There's a the American Meteor Society, uh, which has a, a long track record of, of uh, keeping track of these kind of things, has a on their website they have a, 
you know, for each year going back 10 or 12 years. But if you look at from 2005 to 2000 to, to today, to this year, you see mm-hmm. quite a, a, a stark increase, you know, a very dramatic kind of increase over those years, say from 2005 to this year. Uh, yes. Year on year, they have been increasing, you know, and there are, I mean, you look on YouTube and you can find all sorts of uh, videos of people just spotting these things. And I mean, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't remember that even from, you know, 10 years ago. I don't remember there being so many uh, reports and even news reports about people saw a fireball in the sky or heard a loud boom and uh, and then this Chalibans thing. I mean, yes. is it? I mean, are we going off on one type thing in terms of <laughs> wondering that there's something up here, or what's well, your opinion? Well, the one thing you have to be careful of is whether the reporting uh, uh, systems have changed over, yeah. over the years. But uh, there is a possibility that uh, we can strike uh, uh, epochs where uh, there is an increase in the amount of material hitting the Earth. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I say this is that uh, despite uh, the fact that scientists believe that comets uh, come from outside the solar system. There was some very good work done by uh, Tom Van Flanden, uh, the astronomer, uh, mm-hmm. the late the late Tom Van Flanden, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he showed that the orbits of uh, comets suggest their origin within the solar system and due to an explosion, an exploding planet, he called it. Now, uh, we don't need to uh, try and invent an an exploding planet to explain the debris that's flying around the solar system. The electrical mm-hmm. machining of a planet's surface hurls uh, huge amounts, you know, whole mountain ranges and everything into space. Uh, and that material, in, uh, some of it goes into orbit uh, as a, a moon of uh, the, uh, the two warring planets, mm-hmm. or it can be debris which becomes comets or asteroids. This is why I've said there's no real distinction between asteroids and comets apart from their orbits. Mm-hmm. They're, all, they're all debris from these encounters. Now, that means that um, there can be clouds of this material, uh, which was ejected in the same direction and with the same, much the same velocity. Uh, and I can imagine that some of that has, uh, like the cometary orbits, uh, very distant orbits. And that means that at some point in time, when it comes into the inner solar system, we can have an increase in the amount of um, uh, debris that mm-hmm. the Earth encounters. So I don't see any problem in, um, mm-hmm. in, in having a real increase in, um, in debris striking the Earth. So there could be a, a kind of swarm, let's say, of yes, debris. Yes, this, that... this is the kind of thing that happens when a comet breaks up. You end up with a swarm of, uh, or a meteorite showers at regular intervals every year. Yeah, and there could be. A, I mean, because <clears throat> I mean, we see the the Geminids and all the different ids, but yes. they're very small. And um, for years, people have seen them. It's you know they're falling stars or shooting stars, and people see them little specks. Very yes. few, very few of them are very big. But the things that I'm talking about seem to be a lot bigger, uh, and even to the point of quite a few have actually impacted, have reached the surface of the planet. Um, yes. So, I mean, maybe we're talking about, is there something maybe, is it possible that there could be some kind of a, a swarm of debris that's on a kind of a cyclical or an orbit within the solar system? And Yes, that's possible. In fact, know, I think that probably happened in the past. 
there is there are some questions about uh, the dark ages and so on the middle ages uh, where society seemed to um, fall apart to some mm-hmm. extent uh, and the question is was there some external influence which uh, uh, caused the um, you know disasters or mm-hmm. uh, a lot of concern and uh, people's normal daily concerns were taken over by something else this is possible yeah um, well so there are echoes of these past events which will continue yeah yeah i mean down the ages i don't know if you know mike bailey he's a dendrochronologist he's written quite a few uh books on on that topic um yeah along similar lines um himself and then mike caffrey i think they took um old cultural texts you know references from yes. Irish mythology in particular, but they looked globally as well, and did a kind of similar had a similar approach to you guys, where yes. you compared it with the environmental record. And yes, Mike he, Bailey, Mike Bailey uh, has been associated with uh, a group in uh, the UK uh, that I've been associated with almost since their inception. Uh, so I know of Mike. Uh, did, he's spoken spoken at their meetings. Is this a secret group, or do they have a name? No, no, no. It's the Society for Interdisciplinary Studies, and um, uh, they can be found on the web. Okay. And uh, I often speak at their meetings. Uh, so if anyone wants to see me in person, that would be a, uh, one place to keep an eye on. That's a very a very cryptic name, Society for Inter- Interdisciplinary Studies. Yeah, it's called the SIS. SIS. It sounds like... <laughs> From from you and Mike Bailey and whoever else is involved, it sounds uh, like they're they're hiding something <laughs> very yeah, very important I, I, under that. Yeah, uh, we, we don't wish to hide it. It's under that name, that, uh, yeah, it was set up um, with a very strong uh, historical uh, group uh, mm. who were interested in trying to piece together what uh, the sorts of things that might have happened in the past and uh, how you, how do you actually. Um, uh, figure out uh, ancient history, uh, you know, the, the lines of kings and that and mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff. I wasn't particularly concerned with that, but the, I was uh, uh, with, I was perhaps one of uh, their chief uh, science contributors, uh, but there were a number of others uh, also. And uh, it's very good because being a society for interdisciplinary studies, this is the way of the future. Mm-hmm. There should be no barriers. Uh, people should be able to roam from one thing to another and uh, toss their ideas in. Well, this is this is what that society is all uh, about. Absolutely, because that's one of the things that I think really prevents, um, you know, uh, the truth or um, a real consensus understanding of, of our planet and our history and our universe yes. and our place in it is getting people from different fields. Mm-hmm. who are involved in research, yeah. putting their information together. But right now, it's all very compartmentalized and they're kept apart and there's, you know, it's never the twain shall meet. You got a, you're a geologist and you're a historian and that's it. You know, you don't talk to each other type thing, you know? Yeah. It's, even worse than, it's even worse than that. If you go uh, into university departments, you'll find that, uh, you know, A won't speak to B because he doesn't agree with mm-hmm. uh, B's theory and vice versa. Yeah. They won't even read their material. Uh, this sort of territorialism uh, is something which uh, is uh, anathema to, to real science. Yeah, exactly. That and money and greed, mm. greed in mm. particular. I mean, you've written yourself, I, I think I'm quoting your article here, modern science has become a monolithic structure funded by governments 
and tied to political outcomes. Radical change is arguably more difficult to achieve in such a situation than at any time in the past. Funding yes. of, of dissident scientists is not available. Their publication in leading science journals, disallowed by the anonymous peer review system, jeopardized. Meanwhile, the media lazily accept what they are fed by the quote-unquote experts. Yes. Hmm. <clears throat> it is a, 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 you know, a systemic problem. Uh, in the old, in the, uh, at the time of the Renaissance, and this is what we would need is the, to encourage the Renaissance scholars, uh, they found uh, benefactors. And this is virtually what we've had to do, uh, is to find uh, people who are prepared to... Um, uh, fund our meetings and so on um, based on their uh, inspiration or the inspiration they've gained from what we're doing. And uh, I've always felt that to get the message out, we just have to network and make it mm -hmm. understandable, uh, make it, um, uh, well, inspirational. That's the only word I, I think I can use um, yep. so that uh, we as a group, now have a great number of uh, fantastic uh, uh, volunteers who volunteer their time and their efforts to uh, putting on our conferences, for instance, and also to um, perform experiments. Mm -hmm. Because the Electric Universe actually hands science back to the individual. If you want to go into your garage and tinker and try and find out how to build an anti-gravity device, you've got the opportunity. Mm -hmm. or how to build a, an energy device which, uh, you know, low-energy nuclear reactions and so on, uh, you've got uh, the opportunity to, to have a go. Um, so it's we actually function because of all of the volunteers we now have. And uh, the inspiration of uh, the group is a powerful thing. Mm -hmm. And I've had people at our meetings in the U.S. We now have annual meetings uh, of the Electric Universe in the U.S. We'd like to do it in other places, of course, in the future when we get the funding. Mm -hmm. uh, but people come up to me and say, uh, this is the most amazing meeting I've ever been to, uh, simply because it is broad, it is interconnected. You can ask a question about any subject and, and people will have interesting things to say about it. That's awesome. Well, all power to you. Yeah. Uh, well, we're reaching the top of the hour here, so I think we've uh, pretty much done as much as we can do. Um, mm -hmm. it's, well, first of all, I just want to thank you for, first of all, for coming on our show, and secondly, for all of the work that you and your colleagues have done um, for so long uh, against such odds. Um, I mean, just based on this interview, uh, what we've discussed tonight, uh, I mean, it makes it pretty clear that uh, this is essential. This information is essential, and this uh, mm. paradigm shift in, in, in understanding of uh, of us as a species and the planet and the universe and everything uh, is, you know, it's, if if humanity is going to evolve in any true kind of way, this information is is, is going to be core to that. I think. Um, yes. So um, yeah. So. Yes, I, I rather liked. Um, Arthur C. Clarke is a science fiction author and he had a book called Childhood's End. Well, I see this as uh, Childhood's End. Um, mm -hmm. Only we don't need the intervention of aliens to uh, no. kick us along. No, we can we do it ourselves. We need to grow up. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Grow up. yes. And, uh, <laughs> and thank you for your writings. Your books have been uh, 
even if they're not mainstream and probably not recommended by mainstream media and mainstream, mainstream science, for some of us, it's been a highly inspirational. So thank you for this great gift. Yeah, so Truly. just to give the name so, of the book again, it's... Uh, yeah, I remind the, our listeners of the title of your book, The Electric Universe, by you, Wallace Thornhill, and uh, your colleague, David Talbot. It's a great book. It's explained in an easy way. Not there's very a lot long. Of, there's yeah. a lot of pictures. Mm-hmm. There's about uh, 100, uh, 100 pages. And it uh, it's be already te- better than most, if not all, the mainstream science book you it could should, find on the shelves. So it buy it, it now and te- read it. It should be a textbook in all schools. Yeah. That's uh, great. That's, that's what we should aim for. And um, mm. the main websites are thunderbolts.info. Check it out. And Wall's personal website is hollowscience. That's H-O-L-O science.com. So, um, yeah, again, thanks a million, Wall. And maybe we'll, we'll get a chance to speak to you again. It's been great. We've mm, really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Thanks, Scott. And thanks, Neil. Okay. Um, yeah, I agree with you about um, being a school book. My view is that uh, children should be um, challenged with alternatives and let them make up their own minds. Absolutely. Okay, folks, we're going to leave it there for this week. Um, it's been great uh, all around. We've, we've had a great show. We've, we've thoroughly enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed it too. Um, and we'll be back, uh, well, maybe we'll take a, a couple of weeks break given the season, but um, we'll be back soon with another show. Um, until then, uh, have a good one. Take care. Bye. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. at all. It just is. And so are we. For a little while.